a lot of the rituals center around communication. And I think if you are a good leader, then you have to be very transparent with the team about where are we going, what's not working, and also give a really strong sense of direction. There's an element of not being prescriptive, but still shining a light. People know roughly the direction you want to go in, but you're not telling them exactly what to do. Equally important are things like recognition. So even the smallest achievement should be recognized sometimes, and there will be a time and a place to do that. Relatability is important as well. If you feel like the leaders don't have any time to even care about what you're doing, then there's a lack of psychological safety that comes with that. Welcome to Product with Banash. I'm Axel, and in this show, I talk to product leaders and experienced operators across Europe and beyond. Together, we'll learn about their craft, how they build successful products, and unpack the frameworks and secrets they've used in delivering growth for their businesses. Today, I'm super excited to welcome Jean Liu, who's currently VP product at List, where she leads the development of the world's largest fashion catalog, serving over 200 million global shoppers. Previously, Jean was interim head of machine learning services at the BBC, where she drove the BBC's machine learning strategy and led the development of personalized recommendations. Hi, Jean. How's it going? Great. It's lovely to be here. How are you? Thank you for taking the time to do this. I really appreciate it. I've been wanting to have this conversation with you for a while. Before we dive into today's topics, why don't you tell us a little bit about your background? Sure. I was born and raised in Canada, and actually I originally trained as a neuroscientist. So nothing to do with product or tech. And in fact, I didn't even know any of those types of occupations actually existed. And while I was finishing up my graduate degree, I ended up in London. I was on holiday. By total chance, I was at a pub and I met an English guy and he actually inspired me to move to the city. And then from there, I fell into product. So essentially, I connected with a founder of a really tiny B2B data analytics startup. It was related to the scientific space. So I had a lot of domain knowledge, obviously, about the world of research from my neuroscience background. And I joined the company as their second employee. Over the years, I bounced around a few different roles. First, I started off, I was actually writing their blog and like doing a lot of data analysis. Then I started actually curating some of the data sources. So they, there were a lot of like news outlets and things. So it was a very interesting space. And then I started answering customer support tickets and starting to train customers. And then before I knew it, I became their product manager. So when I finally left after almost eight years, I was head of product and I had grown their product and design function from the ground up. We ended up around 30 people by the end of it. So it wasn't massive, but it was still a great journey. Learned a huge amount and really learned how to do product. And as an aside, the English guy that I met at the pub, I married him last year after a decade of being together. So yeah, that that was my entryway into product, into the world of tech in London. And I think the great thing about being in the UK is that it's home to a lot of really great institutions like the BBC, which is where I actually went after that startup. So pretty much just after the pandemic hit, I joined the BBC. And essentially, I joined to head up product for a department that was called BBC Data Lab. And you might tell, you could probably tell from the name, we had a lot of data scientists, data engineers, machine learning engineers. And that meant we had really astonishing data and machine learning capabilities and skills. But the work often felt a bit like a solution that was searching for a problem at times. So I think my main contribution there during those interesting years of the pandemic was to reshape BBC Data Lab from being a little bit of an R&D team, quite frankly, 
to something that took the shape of a really empowered product-led team, cross-functional, so utilizing the skills of even service design, product management, and really focusing on delivering value for BBC audiences. And that was in the form of personalized content discovery. So that was a really, really cool journey. Having come from the tiny startup of 30 and then going to a corporation of 20,000 people, I actually found that I was really missing startup life. So that's how I ended up at List. And they're a lot smaller. Technically, I suppose we can be called a scale up for about 200 people. And I joined them just at the sort of tail end of the pandemic as we were starting to come out of things in the UK. Brilliant. I was going to say, this is probably... The first time I hear an introduction to somebody's background that includes like a rom-com style love story. In <laughs> My husband's going to be really embarrassed that I've mentioned this, by the way. <laughs> I love this. Thank you so much for bringing that little special touch to your intro. So like you mentioned before, you joined this small startup when you just started and then you went to this large corporation and then moved on to List to take a Different role, right? More centered around leadership and how you're going to build out this product capability. You joined List over, just over a year ago. Can you tell us how you prepared for that transition? What are some of the things that you had to put in place to ensure that your onboarding was smooth and just that you were in the kind of the best environment to lead there? I actually used an age-old technique that I'm sure all product people will be very familiar with, which is essentially a user research technique. And I first tried it out at the BBC and I found that was really effective in a remote environment. So just like you don't meet any of your colleagues, you need to like utilize the minimal time that you have with each person and really learn as much as you can. But it's basically about taking this structured interview, like a discussion guide, frankly, with three, three to four questions asking as many people across your department. So in my case, it was like 30, 40 people or something in the department and trying to learn what's on their mind. What are they worried about? What are the challenges? But most importantly, once you synthesize those insights to present that back to the team and take accountability for those actions, I'll give you this example of how I put it into practice. Essentially, right back at the end of 2021, List was going through a really interesting transition. So First of all, we were pivoting from a really long-standing business model, which was affiliate marketing. So List is not a consumer-led product, or it wasn't at least back then, and it had been going for about a decade. But we were pivoting from that affiliate marketing lead gen model to something that was member first, that we could actually drive value for people who were signed in. And that transition is not easy to do, actually, especially when you have essentially quite a mature business model. Also, at the same time, many businesses are going through the same thing trying to roll out hybrid working. We're trying to go back to the office and give people a reason to connect and shake off the cobwebs of social interaction. And so all those things were in the background, but in my department in particular, so I was hired as a VP product, but also specifically to look after one particular area, which was called very pithily at the time, data and shared services. As you can probably tell from the name, a little bit ambiguous what that department is doing. It was very back-end engineering heavy. There was a lot of output-focused thinking and delivery-minded thinking rather than outcome-focused thinking. And then there were lots of also long-running technical projects that it was a little bit unclear what the impact would be, especially from a customer or business side. I was hearing one thing from our C-suite, our data, and that includes the fashion catalog, as well as other things like transaction data, for example. The catalog is at the heart of everything that List does because List is inventory-free. So we don't manage returns, we don't manage fulfillment. So it's all about the data and the quality of that data. 
on the other hand, the department and everybody in the department were saying, I don't really see the customer impact. I'm working on this stuff. It's really cool. It's interesting data problems, but I don't really see how that's connected to the product. And I don't see how that's helping the customer experience. And I'm thinking, how can both things be true? It's not really possible. Just to give you an example of the types of things the department was working on. At List, we have over 1,300 different retailers that we partner with, so different stores. And we have 9 million in-stock products in any given moment. We have 28,000 brands. There's a huge amount of data flowing into the catalog. And in many cases, it's duplicate data. One store, Farfetch, might carry one type of Gucci handbag, and then another store will have the identical Gucci handbag. But because there isn't as much data quality in terms of reliable identifiers and that sort of thing, quite hard to bring those things together when you want to show a customer a price comparison details page. So those types of data science problems were what the team were really focusing on. And a lot of the stuff they were doing was really about solving that problem. Like, how do I reduce the noise for the customer? Although at the time, we didn't really even conceptualize the problem that way. It was very much, how do I solve exact duplicates? How do I use machine learning to solve this problem? How many of these can I create? And like, that type of thing, it wasn't really geared around the customer. So we didn't really know what good looked like. And that was really what I was finding from all these different interviews. So essentially sat down with 25 different people. I think it was a smattering of people in data science, engineering, product, et cetera, and really asking the same questions. Like, what, where do you see our challenges? If you had a magic wand, what would you change? Like those types of very open-ended questions to get people to really talk about what was on their mind. And the idea is I'm not trying to be judgmental. I don't have a preconceived notion of what we need to get to. I just want to listen. And more and more I was hearing there's this desire to be customer focused. There was a little bit of lack of clarity around what's our department's mission. How do all these other squads work towards the same goal? Because even though we're working on this duplicates problem, we're also working on transaction stuff over here, we're working on other bits of the catalog over there. How do they all connect and how is it connected to the company strategy, especially as we move from lead gen to member first? And then there was, I think the most interesting thing that came out of those conversations was there were many major concerns in all parts of the department about this long running technical project that had frankly been going on for quite a long time. And every single person was a bit like, I don't really know if this is going to deliver the value that maybe even C-suite think, or they have all these possible worries of where this was going and this anxiety that was under underlying everything they were telling me. It was very interesting. And once I could get a grasp of what different people were struggling with, I think it was interesting to see that it didn't even matter which squad you were in. You probably had a similar kind of worry, but they didn't really talk to each other so much of the time. So there were communication problems, alignment problems, and all of that. So synthesizing all of that, I did the usual very messy mirror board, <laughs> condense everything into a deck. And then essentially I had like all hands where I said, right, I'm going to, I'm going to tell you how I did this. I spoke to all these different people across the tribe or the department and I found out all those different themes. And then the next thing is, here's what I'm going to do, but not just me. Collectively, we will all take ownership of this problem because actually what we found was, okay, if we don't know what the customer problem is, let's literally do pens down. Let's do some rapid discovery sessions and try and validate that we are actually chasing after the right customer problems. And then we can say, do those problems really exist? And is that really long running technical scary project there? Is that going to solve the problem we think it is? And actually, when we came out of that, we built all these wonderful opportunity solution trees that really mapped up to the customer problem. Based on all the evidence, 
we all collectively realized, no, that project isn't really solving that problem. Therefore, we all agree we should shut it down. And I think that's also been, that wasn't quite scary because it was, I think, two months or so in, into my role at List that we decided, all right, we're going to have to kill this. And I don't know if we really talk enough as product people about shutting things down and how that is very valuable. I launched this thing and it drove all this impact. But I think the most impactful thing I did in the beginning was actually shutting down something that was going to possibly drag on for a long time and maybe not deliver the solutions that we hoped for. Benefit though of doing this whole user research and synthesis and presenting back was that it wasn't just me saying, hello, everybody, we're going to shut this project down. It was a collective realization. There was already this sense. We validated that. Then we all made a decision of what to do together. So that was one kind of key example that came from the beginning. It really helped me earn the trust of my immediate leadership team as well, because suddenly we had the agency to do something about this worry. And it wasn't just, okay, we're just going to keep going until someone says, stop, we all agree. And that's part of what resonates here is the fact that your ability to federate all of these people in a relatively short amount of time reminds me of, I don't know if you've read The First 90 Days by Daniel Watkins. Sorry, Paul Watkins. (laughs) I haven't, but I have heard of it. Yeah. Yeah. So he basically explains that there is this framework for how you prepare your first 90 days, especially as a leader in a new organization. Mm -hmm. One of the things he prescribes doing in the first 90 days is what I think it's called like a hallmark move. You have to do this big change that's going to basically solidify your position as a leader in the organization. Yeah. And when you talk about the combination of these two things, so the basically this technique of treating your new colleagues as research participants, where you are the user research, Mm -hmm. creating, establishing the relationship, the one-to-one relationship with different people in your organization, plus realizing later a collective realization that this thing that the whole team has been working on for so long and around which there was a lot of anxiety, collectively, you guys as a team are going to decide to kill this. This sounds a lot like this big move. um, Yeah, that's true. In the first 90 days. And I think it, It really helps because in a lot of these organizations, when there's a shift, a change in leadership, people are waiting for something, right? They're in anticipation of a strong signal that basically tell them you're safe now. People have this like urge for security to Mm -hmm. feel like safe environment. And the role of the leader in most of the organizations is to come in and build trust and ensure that they can now evolve in a safe space. And I think that's super important. I really like the way you tackle that. Yeah. And I completely agree. I think safety is really the essence of why that move was successful, I think. And it wasn't just safety that I generated, but it was also our leadership level, like our C-suite. Nobody was going around pointing fingers, oh, why were you doing this? Because actually that things had just changed. Originally, that project had clear relevance, clear rationale. But as the market moves, as things change, it was so suddenly no longer as valuable given the length of time it would take to actually fulfill. So the vision was sound, but it's the execution and also adaptation to change. And so I think what was great was it wasn't just me saying it's okay for us to stop this, but it was our C-suite saying it's okay. And now I'm really excited about this other stuff that you're going to be working on because Mm. you've identified what is important now. And since then, I mentioned before, there are a whole string of different actions our name was data and shared services. And like a lot of that safety also comes from an identification with that name. 
And people were just like, oh, I don't really know what that name means. And so some of it, the next bit was really about like, actually something as simple as we renamed our department to catalog. And all of a sudden it became clear to everybody, including people in other teams and other departments saying, oh, that's what you're doing. I completely get it. I know why you're trying to do this for the customer. I understand how I should interact with you. And I won't be asking you about data and BI stuff because that actually was a different department. <laughs> Almost yeah. like a positioning thing. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's, that's really interesting. Yeah. Do you feel stuck not knowing how to tackle a problem or you're looking for a solution to help your team members grow in their craft? Either way, check out panache.io. Panache works with product leaders to bring expert insights and proven frameworks you can use in your role as a product person. Companies like Atlassian, Content Square and Miracle all choose Panache to provide the right level of training and coaching to their product teams so they can perform at their best. Whether you're a product leader or an individual contributor, Head to panache.io to get an idea of how we can help you level up today. Check out panache.io. That's P-A-N-A-S-H dot I-O. I want to touch on something you mentioned earlier. So you talked about this technique of essentially conducting research. How did you position the, this exercise as you were inviting people to spend yeah. time with you? Like, how were you presenting this? Was this like, a meet and greet. I think the reason why I'm asking is you want people to be in the right setting yeah. uh, to be able to volunteer some of this information. How do you make that happen? Yeah. So what I did was I actually sent an email, right? Pretty much like day one when I joined, just saying, hello, everybody. I'm going to be sending a Calendly bookable appointment slot thing. You can book a time with me anytime in the next few weeks. Here are all the slots. And in those times, I'm going to talk to you. Who are you? Tell me about yourself. And it's going to be like 15 minutes of that. I was actually very prescriptive. 15 minutes. We're just going to say whatever. We're just going to shoot the breeze. The other rest of the time is going to be a research study. And you have to humor me because this is my way of getting to know the department. I was very transparent about the fact it was a research study and I needed help. So it's essentially saying not hello. It's a meet and greet. You have to attend. It was completely open. You could volunteer and it would, you could get to know me. I could get to know you, but also, you know, that it's a research study. And then same thing within the interviews themselves. I was very upfront. There are no right or wrong answers. I just want you to be honest with me. I'm here to listen. I'm going to spend less time talking. I'm going to listen to you and really setting the tone so that it was clear that again, it was a safe space. And some of the things that people opened up with, it was. Everything from, oh, I don't like my working setup. It's about compensation. All these little clues give you a sense of the pulse of the team and how people are really feeling. What are they worried about? And most of those things are pretty easy, actually, to tick off. And it's a matter of making sure that then I go looking for the right answers in the right places. Oh, I'll reach out to the people team and ask them because these things came up. Or work with some of the product managers because maybe the product roadmap isn't super clear and the strategy isn't super clear. So let's think about that. But really just setting the tone and saying, you don't have to do this, but if you do, this will be really valuable and this is how I'm going to help. And surprisingly, the vast majority of people really do respond in these things and volunteer because they're also at the heart of it. Everybody is trying to be helpful, I think. So it's good to make it seem less scary by letting people take control and ownership over that meeting. What were some of your biggest learnings using this technique? I'm really curious to 
also figure out as you were going through this process and learning and starting to build out those mirror boards and you know, just <laughs> trying to like condense all of these insights, what were some of the learnings just going through the process itself? And also, if you had to do this all over again today, would you approach it differently? What are some of the things you would change? Yeah. In the beginning, like I said, I started trying this technique out when I was at the BBC. And some of the more practical learnings are because you're trying to juggle these interviews with actual onboarding activities that maybe your manager or other parts of your stakeholders, they're all setting up at the same time. Your diary becomes a mess very quickly. So it's about making sure that you set enough time to take a bathroom break, get a cup of tea, and just not completely overload yourself in the first two weeks. So actually, logistically, it's about making sure that balance is there. But I think the other thing too is keeping it simple really helps. In the beginning, when I was at the BBC, I tried asking a lot of questions and I almost never got through them because you really do get maybe in that 15 minute time slot. It's really just about one or two really important questions that you want to land. And and the rest, if you want to do follow-ups, sometimes those happen organically anyway. So if you're going to see someone in the office, you can ask a few bits and pieces of follow-up or even on Slack. But the heart of the discussion, you need to be really purposeful about what you want to ask and how you want to make the most of that time. And I think the other thing too is almost to push through the awkwardness of the first half where you're really just trying to get to know people and break the ice. And people are obviously, some people are going to be very shy and they're not going to want to open up and talk a lot. So you have to be prepared with things that you can just talk about essentially and even if it's about saying a little bit more about me and then that gets them talking and maybe ask a few questions, it's to read the room and check that your participant is always feeling comfortable. I think those are probably the key learnings. One of the things I think I would have mentioned, but you said in the previous section was as you're playing these learnings back to the entire product community or to that department, you're mm-hmm. saying, these are some of my insights and These are some of the things that you said, and these are some of the ways we could collectively address this together. My first, the first thought that crossed my mind was, you might be Mm over-promising doing this exercise. You might come in and saying like, don't worry, guys, I'm going to take care of everything. You know what I mean? Yeah. How do you balance that, right? Because as I said, in that leadership change moment, people people have expectations. How do you ensure that you're not over-promising and under-delivering, basically? That's a really good question. And uh, I don't necessarily know if I've perfectly nailed that, but I would say that when you're presenting back, there will usually be a couple of things, like I said before, that are quite easy to pick off, like little logistical things or just simple meetings that need to be in the diary that weren't there before, or just a little bit of extra comms here and there. But that the bigger things, you probably want to bite off only one or two of those and really commit to those. But I think the other thing is to not just take singular accountability for it and make sure that you've empowered your whole leadership team. So in our structure, essentially, but we call instead of departments, we call them tribes, which is why I keep slipping up there. (laughs) But we've got a tribe leadership, which is me. And then we've got the engineering counterpart. He's also a tribe leader. But then within that, we've got multiple squads. There's a squad leader who tends to be a product manager. We've got a tech lead as well, their engineering counterpart. And essentially that group composes my leadership team. And a lot of what I had to do, I couldn't do on my own. I couldn't, I didn't even know enough about the organization to be able to do it on my own. But it was about not 
just purely delegating, but really guiding that leadership team and giving them the goalposts and helping to kind of steer the way so that we could achieve this together. So even with, just to give a very simple example, even with rebranding us as the catalog tribe, that was not just a simple mag rename, but it was, it even fundamentally changed the way that we communicated within ourselves and what types of rituals we needed to have as a tribe where suddenly you could see little gaps here and there. And then there'd be different people who are maybe better placed to fill those gaps or logistical things around how it spills over into the budget and how we talk to the finance team and all these other kind of corporate support areas. Lots of things have to be done just to even change the name and get the message out. So much of it had to be shared with that leadership team. And the leadership team also should be keeping me honest. And if I'm saying, I want to do this, they say, oh, but we're trying to do this. And this is really hard. So when are we going to have the time to do all these other things? Is that really like mutually keeping each other in check? Right? Exactly. Exactly. Um, that um, it's easy to get excited. It's easy to yeah. look at all the... Especially um, at first when you just feedback. arrive. Yeah, exactly. And you get overwhelmed. Yeah. Like, oh, I want to fix everything. But you absolutely can't. And you just have to fix the things that are the most prominent and the most painful. And you might not make everybody happy. And it, that's not the goal of this exercise either. But as long as you can focus on what really matters, it's just like prioritizing features, really. But these things are organizationally going to really hold you back in terms of delivering impact. So those are the things we have to tackle first. Brilliant. You started talking about your product leadership team, basically this first line of people that you can rely on to yeah. lead the rest of the product organization. How do you see your role as an enabler of these people? How does that work? What are some of the, the things you're doing to ensure that they've got everything they need, they're empowered and enabled to be doing a good job? Yeah, that is a great question. I think one key thing is always giving a sense of what good looks like in terms of best practice, for example, but also strategy. It's interesting because at list we've got those tribes that I mentioned, those departments, but we've also got chapters, which are disciplines. So within my tribe, I've got cross-functional people. So I've got engineers and product managers who are all in that leadership unit. But then we've got the product chapter, which spans the entire organization. And there are other product people who work on the app more directly. So the front-end experience, the web experience, and so on. And so I wear two hats. So one is obviously supporting my immediate tribe leaders, but then also supporting the product chapter at large. And if I just talk about the product chapter for a minute, one of the things that I found and worked on with a lot of other different product folk and C-suites or CPO or CTO was developing our sort of sense of the product life cycle and having a consistent way to write up experiments, like to share hypotheses, to identify what was a customer problem and align on those. Because every different tribe actually had a different way of doing things. You would go to meetings where people would present about a feature and then you'd have half the room wondering, I wonder what that is about because they've missed about 10 layers of context that just was not in the document or not in the deck. And so we really wanted to say, how do we actually come up with the strategy? Then how do we take it into an experiment? How do we validate that these are real problems, that the solutions that we've designed are going to help? And also that we have a consistent framework to allow us to not get super obsessed with one solution, which is what happened in the beginning with Catalog, a long running project. How do we know that is the right solution? Can we test it in a smaller way 
and do that more cheaply and then develop those good practices. And a lot of those good practices um, over the years, just sometimes they were there in pockets, but there wasn't that kind of cohesive organization-wide understanding. So to set my tribe up for success, but also the others towards, I think the middle of last year, we ran through a big exercise where we essentially relaunched this concept of the product lifecycle. And one of the key things that we were trying to do was essentially reintroduce the idea of a hypothesis card, where you could really explain the hypothesis you had for any experiment or any research, any type of analysis, just to be able to communicate in a common language across the entire organization, not just with product folk, but others as well. And so I partnered with the design director to essentially roll out this hypothesis card. And we have loads of resources to also help people who were less familiar with things like product discovery and just give people enough support so that they could actually get going. So that was one kind of area. Then from a more frequent day-to-day, week-to-week levels, like for the catalog leadership team, there were many different sort of rituals that I tried to include to make sure that I could support everyone in the right way and allow them to take the ownership of the various problems that we were dealing with, the various challenges in each of their squads. For example, one of the key things that I use to align us is a leadership meeting every week. It's very structured, but this group is meant to help support each other as well as support the whole tribe. So we use things like a user manual just to even get to know each other and to be able to interact with each other in a more efficient and and fun way as well, because we're not just trying to be robots and we're not trying to be completely emotionless at work. We want to have fun and we want to enjoy and share the passion that we have in our work. So it's about fostering uh, that togetherness. On that point, I think it's worth taking a brief moment to explain what a user manual for a human being actually is. So yeah. I learned this in one of my most recent jobs when I was still an employee back in London. My manager said, here's when I joined their team, he said, here's my user manual. And when I read it, the first thing that came to mind was I need to write one for myself. Yeah. And and I thought it was really good because it allowed me to understand little things, but the little things that make a lot of difference in my interactions with him. So please tell us what the user manual is and what does it look like? Yeah. So a user manual is a simple document and it is essentially a short guide to how to work with you as an individual. And you can use different types of questions if you like, so you can adapt them. But typically you can include things like what environments do you prefer to work in? So do you like being somewhere very open? Do you like a buzz or do you need headphones and you need to be heads down all the time. What is that preferred environment? What is your working pattern? Because people will be much more comfortable working early in the morning or in the evening and they'll be different in that way. And very importantly, it's how do you communicate and how do you receive feedback? I think those areas are very interesting too, because some people are much better with Slack and Teams than they are with Zoom or in person. And those habits as well have changed over the past few years. So maybe what your habits were pre-pandemic are different now, but it's a really useful output and resource because it's it's something that helps someone essentially get to know you very quickly. They won't know everything, but there will be little things that they can adapt so that they can suit your communication style a little bit better or, or and vice versa. So I found that this document is very great. It's very good for even just joining a new team or implementing it with an existing team. Because even if you've worked with someone for loads and loads of time, you might actually learn something completely new about them. 
and it's easy to find templates. So I think Confluence does a really good template that is easy just to copy and paste and or you can create your own. But either way, it's a helpful resource for everyone in any team at any level, quite frankly. You were talking about the different rituals your leadership team would have, like regular rituals that show how they spend their time and some of the events they would attend and different people that would be in there. What are some of the most impactful events or rituals people put in place and how does that help their team be successful? From my experience, a lot of the rituals center around communication. And I think if you are a good leader, then you have to be very transparent with the team about where are we going, what's not working, that type of thing, and also give a really strong sense of direction. There is a there's an element of not being prescriptive, but still shining a light. And so people know roughly the direction you want to go in, but they, you're not telling them exactly what to do. And I think that type of those types of communications are very important. But equally important are things like recognition. So even the smallest achievement should be recognized sometimes. And there will be a time and a place to do that. Relatability is important as well. So if you feel like the leader's really aloof or they don't have any time, they're so busy all the time, they're so stressed, they don't have any time to even care about what you're doing, then there's a lack of, I guess, psychological safety that comes with that. And then finally, especially in the turbulent world of tech, which changes all the time and startup land as well, chaos all the time, you want a sense of stability. And so a lot of the rituals that we've been using at List have to do with all those different elements of being transparent, but being fun and showing that stability and being there for the team all the time. An example is a weekly memo that we publish. So it's very informal, but it is just a little checkpoint. Everybody knows that on Friday afternoon, you'll see a little list of all the cool things that we've done this past week or the great wins. Or sometimes it's just one person deserves a shout out because they did something exceptional and it really helped a team member, those types of things, as well as sometimes business results or performance that you might not get enough exposure to sometimes, depending on where you are in the organization. And I think the key thing to that is not to make it like a formal newsletter, which is boring and nobody wants to read something that's so corporate, but it's got to be a little bit fun. So you have some camaraderie and some inner jokes and photos or whatever, just to give that sense of a heart. I think that's what makes the weekly memos quite successful. And those we just publish in Slack as a sort of regular thing. And that is paired with things even like we we do, we actually take this very seriously in catalog, but we have daily icebreakers and different members of my leadership team will post them. And it's just to say hi to everyone. It has no other purpose. There's there, And sometimes they're incredibly goofy, but it's just to say hello to everyone. And as we're more and more on Slack, and you've, even if we're in the office together, there will be some colleagues who are at home. So it's that place where instead of a water cooler, it's that virtual place where you can just be a little bit silly and uh, ask a controversial food question every day, essentially. Oh, love these. Yeah. Yeah. Some of them are so creative, but yeah. You also talked a little bit earlier around giving a strong sense of direction. And you talked about uh, bringing in the strategy right throughout this kind of like continuous number of events that are happening, reminding people, this is why we're doing things and this is the direction in which we're traveling. I believe last week you had an away day, right? With the leadership team. Do you want to tell us a little bit around about how you organize that and what are some of the things you've used to ensure that that day was going to be as impactful as you wanted it to be. 
It was our first one, actually. So I've been running this catalog leadership team for a little while, but we've never really blocked off a half day just to get together, align as a team and kind of support each other. And the purpose of it was twofold. One was definitely to build stronger bonds between those leads. So these are people who set the individual strategy and the roadmaps and tech delivery for all of their individual squads. And at the moment, we've got four squads that span lots and lots of different domains and deal with a lot of complexity and also interface with all other parts of the organization, both commercial and product. And so there's a lot of complexity there that we want to distill also into a clearer strategy of how do we help, how do we help to tell that story that is very clear that the whole tribe will understand, but also how do we begin to explore the next year? So we're deep in planning right now, but the next year of opportunity with all the different pieces that are floating around. So it's a very ambiguous space, but by taking the time to say, we're going to be in strategic thinking mode. We're going to focus on a couple of key topics. We need your help. And then we can translate that to the next layer, which will help give enough direction to the actual squads who are going to be doing the bulk of that work. So the way we structured it was in the morning, or sorry, not in the morning, (laughs) in the early part of the afternoon, it was very much team bonding. We did a little icebreaker that everyone had to say one truth and one lie about themselves. And then we had to vote on which we thought was true. And we learned hilarious, surprising things about each other again. Even though we spend a lot of time with each other, we just didn't do some of those fun things together. We had our senior director of engineering baked an incredible brio and brought in these macadamia proline paste. We had little snacks for people who couldn't join us in person. We actually posted the snacks to them so that they could enjoy it too. And again, this sense of togetherness, even if you're apart, there's tons of things that you can do to make everyone feel included, even if they're not physically in the same space. So there was all that team bonding. And then we had a lot of discussion around how to write good OKRs, because this is a perennial topic that comes up, especially around planning season, where quarterly planning, especially if OKRs are changing a lot, they lead to a lot of frustration. And many, some people really love that space. They thrive in that ambiguity or they thrive in sort of wordsmithing and distilling the right metrics to choose. And then other people absolutely hate it. And they just want to get on with it because it just feels like forever debating the same lines again and again. And so what we actually did was we got a guest speaker who was from a different part of the organization. It was our VP of program management. And she is really brilliant because she is that glue that ties all the other parts of the organization together, including so product and commercial into a very common goal setting framework. And so that we can all speak the same language. So it's quite similar to how we've done that with the product life cycle, but it's essentially, how do we talk about OKRs? How do we set our goals in a way that is very clear for everybody? And we understand where things ladder are down. So we had that kind of guest speaker to give us a slightly different perspective on maybe how we've been approaching OKRs in the department so far. And then we really went deep into our opportunities for next year. And we picked two major topics that were fundamentally going to shift the dynamics within our marketplace. So we're dealing with our stores on one hand, we're dealing with customer needs on the other hand. And there are some fundamental things that we need to change about those different interactions in order for lists to be a successful fashion marketplace that people start their journey on. And that was just on Miro. So we had opportunities to look at competitors. We did a little bit of a breakout room, three different groups, went to look at three different competitors and then came back to share learnings of what we could be doing differently 
but we kept the topic quite constrained. So it wasn't just look at everything from their whole business model. It was this specific lens. How do we perform against this competitor? What are they doing that's really interesting that we've never even thought of? And then have time to have that discussion. The day was actually organized with other members of my leadership team. So again, it wasn't just me. I think I would have probably been such a blocker if if they'd had to rely purely on me. But yeah, everybody hitched in to do little presentations here or to create the workshop structure. And I think we got a lot of value out of it. It's the next most more difficult part perhaps now is we had so many ideas and it's now about distilling again and just continuing this planning process and refining what we think are actually the biggest opportunities now based on these new learnings and based on that discussion we've had in a very different mind headspace. A lot of these collaborative sessions we're trying to do, especially in this hybrid world, the success of these come down to quality of the facilitation itself and like the setting and the environment. It's very interesting to hear how you're looking after some of these small dimensions, for example, around togetherness. So bringing food, creating moments where people share things, I think super important. And especially in the current economic context, some sometimes it's completely forgotten and people are like, no, like we need to focus on ROI and efficiency and productivity. But actually a lot of these small touches are the things that make a difference that then push people to invest more energy in the work they're doing. So thanks for sharing. I thought it was super interesting. We're coming up to my favorite segment of the show, which is called the treasure chest. I've got a bunch of questions for you. I'm going to start around some resources and then we'll go down towards some more random questions that I feel reveal a lot of the guests that come on the show. To start at the treasure chest, I'm going to ask you, what are the most helpful resources you've used to deliver impact as a product person in your career? So this one, I feel like many product people will have the same answer, but I think the most influential resource that I've had in my career has probably been Marty Kagan's book, Inspired. And the reason why I like it so much is because it's written very clearly. So every chapter is actually only a few pages. So it's very digestible. And I got a lot of value from it when I was very early on in my career. But what's great about it is I continue to learn more when I reread. Because when you read it the first time, you think, this is obvious. Why wouldn't anyone, like, why wouldn't everyone just be working like this? It's so obvious. And then you work for a while in the real world, in real product content with real organizations. And you come back to it and you think, oh my goodness, it's so easy to fall into all the anti-powers oh, yeah. that he's identified. Like, oh my gosh, we're doing that. We're a feature factory now. How did it even happen? It just sneaks up on you. But you get a lot of value in rereading it and actually, I guess, recontextualizing it in your own experience. Because sometimes it seems obvious, but until you encounter that very situation, it's not obvious what to do. I think the experience of going back to foundational works like the books from SVPG and Marty Kagan, I think has this effect that sometimes, I don't know if this ha- has happened to you before, but sometimes you'll watch like a Disney movie. So you'll watch it as a child mm-hmm. and then you'll watch it again later and you won't necessarily read the same things out of the same story. So totally. like almost different levels of the story itself feels a bit like an onion. So you, you keep peeling off these layers and there's more, there's always more. Keep the gift that keeps giving. No, that makes a lot of sense. Second question, what would you say are or have been some of the key accelerators in your career? Yeah, that's a great one. And I think the one that comes to mind 
is probably this program that I attended deep in lockdown. The BBC sponsored me to go on it, which was great. It was a development program called the Leadership Summit. And it's run by a company called The Pipeline, which is based in London. And essentially, this program is designed to help women escape the middle management trap, as I think they call it. So you can ascend into executive leadership with many of their tips. And it's a very interesting program because obviously you get to meet other women. You get to meet people who are normally underrepresented in the higher echelons of leadership. And I think it actually opened my eyes to a number of things, including, I think, the importance of having senior sponsors and managing up. It's one of those topics that almost feels a bit like a dirty secret kind of thing. But the way they presented it was very open and very rational. And it's not about favors. It's about actually identifying who can help you in a very positive way, how you can help your organization as well through these leaders who are already in the organization and how you can have the most productive conversations with senior leaders so that you don't necessarily get stuck doing doing all the things you're currently doing and being unable to progress in your career, progress in your learning and so on. So it was actually a lot of real talk that I just feel like normally we would shy away from. And most kind of corporate courses that I've been on wouldn't really talk so much about this. So hearing about it was very refreshing to me and hearing about it in a room full of very inspirational women. And yeah, that was also very inspiring as well. And I think it the program is very varied. It also had elements quite hilariously. One was an acting lesson. So there was an actual actor who facilitated sessions to teach you about like uh, the tone of voice you were using, how you present yourselves, how to exude more gravitas, which again, you're not always intentionally thinking about, but as a product person in particular, communication is everything. As a leader, influence. communication and yeah, influence is everything. Super important. So just having someone tell you, this is how you can be better. I'm coaching you. Say this thing back to me again. Present it with more panache. Come on. And that was actually a really helpful course. So I'm, I think it's a little bit pricey for the average person to go on a course like this, but there probably are very similar resources. And certainly even on places like TikTok, I've seen a lot of these tips come up. And I think they're very valuable just to There's just to so, so many yeah. things on TikTok. I know. It's crazy. Yeah. But yeah, it, it, I think those types of things really gave me a boost and I wasn't even expecting it. I wouldn't have gotten it had I just been heads down in, in the same job always. Yeah. Okay. Another question. I really like this one. What advice would you give your early career self? This one's really hard because I feel like when I was a much younger product manager, I was always just trying to focus and work as hard as humanly possible. And it took me many years to realize that I probably existed in a state of burnout for quite a long period of that time. And we were very vulnerable to it because you can't shut off your work thought, especially after hours. And I found this really bad in the pandemic because there was really nothing else going on in my personal life outside of work. So it was easy to just slip into work, work 24 seven. And so I think if I could go back and tell myself, you should just protect your personal time, like as much as you can, because you're never going to get that time back. And you want to have a fulfilling life outside of work. I'm not saying I didn't do anything fulfilling, but I think I would have increased the balance of personal life over work. And I've been very intentional about it ever since the pandemic to really protect that quality of life outside and my relationships with friends and family and so on outside of work. 
Thanks for sharing. Now to my favorite section of the treasure chest. Bear with me. Imagine you're stranded on a deserted island and you can have the following things, right? First thing, you can take one book. What book would that be? And second thing, you can have an endless supply of one specific dish for all meals going forward. So you're going to eat this one thing until the end of time. We talked about tough food conversations earlier. Yeah, that's the I top. Mean, that, that's <laughs> a tough one. So what would that book be and what would that dish be? So the book, like hands down, without a doubt, it's the neuroscientist in me. I would choose The Man Who Mistook His Wife for a Hat by Oliver Sacks. So for anybody who hasn't read the book, you must, first of all. It's, a, it's essentially a collection of case histories. Oliver Sacks was a famous neurologist who wrote beautiful books exploring the humanity of people who would have otherwise been forgotten by society, frankly. And the human brain is incredibly fascinating. It is a well-developed character in Oliver Sacks' books, and it's my favorite of all time. And I've still never lost that curiosity for neuroscience, I think. So that book I can't live without. For the food, I am, I'm not sure I could do breakfast, lunch, and dinner. And dessert, but I'll try because this is my only option. And to be honest, there are worse things to be had, but I'm totally obsessed and I've always been obsessed with Northern Chinese dumplings or jiaozi, if you're of, if you're a Mandarin speaker. And my favorite flavor is pork and chive. And I just, honestly, I think I could eat them forever and just never get tired of them. I'm not, I haven't been tired of them. You don't have to convince me, like, <laughs> yeah. I'm in. Yeah, but yeah. I, and also, I think the fact that People eat them as appetizers in the UK completely blows my mind because they're a main meal and I can eat them as a main meal. There's more and more. I might just have to move to this island, I think. I can have those dumplings. I'm there. Brilliant. Listen, this was such a great conversation. Thank you so much, Jean, for spending the time with us. Really appreciate it. If people want to connect with you, can they reach out on LinkedIn? Yeah, absolutely. And if you wanted to read about some of the things that I spoke about, like the rituals or the user research technique, I've got a fledgling medium blog, which I sometimes write on. So yeah, we'll useful. share that. We'll share that in the show notes, of course, so people can have the link. Thank you so much again for spending this hour with us. I learned so much from you. Good luck with everything you're doing at List. And hopefully we'll get to chat again soon. Thanks very much. Pleasure. If you're hearing this, you've listened to this episode all the way. And for that, I thank you from the bottom of my heart. You can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or your favorite platform. Also, if you have a minute, please consider giving us a rating as it helps other listeners find the show. You can find all the episodes and resources on panache.io slash podcast. That's P-A-N-A-S-H dot I-O slash podcast. Until next time.